just continue to deepen our understanding of what it means to be the church and what it means to be the body of Christ. And God, may you um, just encourage our hearts today that you would open our eyes and our hearts that we may see you and your word and that God, you would give us the faith and the joy of following you and all that you have called um, in us and from us. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue from our book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 12. And last week, Pastor David introduced us to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 regarding the spiritual gifts, how the Holy Spirit apportions and gives each one in the body of Christ a gift to be used to serve the common good, and that there's many different kinds of gifts. But it's the Spirit that unites us so that all of the gifts, though they're different, are all used for the common good, for the building up of the body. And today we're going to look at even further explanation as the Apostle Paul now begins to talk a little bit more about what it means to be the body. And so today we're going to talk about being the body. And specifically, being the body means that we live in and we live out the unity that we have in Christ. That being the body of Christ means that we understand and we live in and we live out the unity that we have in Christ. That the unity that we have as a church, as a body, is a powerful thing. That God gifts us with unity so that we can more effectively serve his mission and grow up into maturity in Christ. Before we read the passage, you know, I was thinking about the power of unity. And it reminded me of a time when I was in college and you've heard me reference a lot of different stories about my time serving in Vancouver, doing some inner city ministry. But on one of the trips that when we were there, actually the first summer that I went, one of the things that we got to do to take a break from the ministry there is kind of do some team building is uh, we got to go dragon boat racing. And I might have mentioned this story before, but so I got to go dragon boat racing. I never knew what it was, but apparently it's this international competition. And in Vancouver every year there's this world dragon boat championship race where uh, teams from all over the world, they bring their own custom boats and they have these races. You know, it's a competition among all these different countries, you know, in the, in the harbor there in, in Vancouver. And so um, there is actually a professional dragon boat racing team and a club that's, that's there on the harbor. And so what, what our director did was he let us go and, um, and two of the teams that we were serving in, we got to go dragon boat racing where two teams got to race each other in the harbor. Now, none of us have ever been dragon boat racing before. So they uh, brought us, to, they showed us the boat. And so basically a dragon boat is a boat and it has a bench and there's a, you sit two by two. And uh, you each have a paddle, and then you, you, you row together, and then you, you race. So when we got into the boat, we sat two by two. And so the way that they did is because we were amateurs, um, they basically had, you know, uh, two people who were actually professional dragon boat racers that rode with us. One person sat in the very front, and then one person was in the very back. And the instructions they basically gave us was, this is how it works, okay? So there's like, there were like 10 or 12 of us in this boat, and we all ro were rowing. And they basically said, this is how it works. There's one person who's one of the professional dragon boat racers who sits on the very front. Now, then, then there's a person in the back will call out this cadence. And the person on the front, the two professionals, will basically work with each other. The first person on the very front, he will, he will, he will begin the row according to the rhythm that we were supposed to follow. And the way it was supposed to work is that everybody, so the person who sits behind the front person and the person who sits across from them, they're just, their job is just to watch the person in the front. 
And whatever they do, you mimic their motion. As close as possible, you try to mimic their motion. Everybody else just looks at the person right in front of them. Whatever they do, you follow. And it's just, you just looked at the person in front, the person in front, and the very front people are marking off of the professional. And if we do that, then, you know, this is how we pick up speed and that's how we're going to win this race, right? And everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. So we start out and the first person starts rowing. Now, because we've never done this before, it's very easy to see who, like, the alpha dogs are, right? Who the rebels are. Because as we're going, and it's, it's a little bit hard because we're rowing, but we haven't quite gotten in sync yet. So the boat's kind of not going very fast. So there's some of the, I remember there was a couple of guys on the boat who were getting kind of frustrated. And rather than following directions, they were kind of barking out their own instruction. Hey, get in line. Hey, you in the front left. You know, call out people's names. Hey, you're not in sync. You need to slow down. You need to speed up. And so what happened was there was this cacophony of noise and there was confusion. And nobody knew who they were supposed to follow. And so for the first couple of minutes, it was very strenuous and we weren't really going anywhere. And we were looking and the other boat was like passing us. So everybody started getting really nervous. People were getting frustrated. And uh, the person in the back, the, the, the professional, was like, remember what we told you. Trust us. Remember what we told you. Stop looking at other people. Start barking out other instructions. Just look at the person in front of you and trust that they're following the person in front of them. And the person in the front's following the person that everyone needs to follow. If you, if you follow this process, we will win this race. Trust me. So after a few more minutes, everyone just started slowly getting quiet and quiet. Next thing you know, there wasn't a single word. Everybody was just concentrating on the person in front of them. And then next thing you know, we started going faster and faster and faster. And there was at this point where all the paddles were in sync and we were flying through the water. It was an amazing feeling when everybody was rowing together and we won the race. It was a close race, but we won. But we started at a major disadvantage because we didn't follow the instructions and we weren't functioning in unity as one unit. And when I thought of that experience, I thought, that is what the church is supposed to be like. Especially in today where there's these turbulent cultural waters. We're, we're like a boat that's trying to serve on mission. We're trying to get somewhere. God has sent us out into this world with a message. And I feel like sometimes as the church, we got too many competing voices. We got too many people who aren't willing to follow the example of the person who's leading. And we all want to draw attention to ourselves. We all want to highlight what we can do. And we're barking instructions. And the church isn't moving anywhere. In fact, we're slowing down. But when we all function as a unit, and when we all take our cues from Jesus, who sits in that front seat, and he sets the pace. And when we follow him and when we trust the people around us and we begin to function as a unit, though we're different, though we each have a, a responsibility to row, but we're rowing together. And when we do that, I believe that as a church, we're going to move, we're going to grow, and we're going to be amazed at what God is doing in us and through us. And so the unity of the body is critical for accomplishing the purposes that God has given us. Not just to accomplish the, the purpose in what we do, but accomplishing the purpose of who we're becoming. It all is critical on that we trust each other and we seek to preserve unity in the body.
And so the passage today is talking about unity, what it is, the challenges, and the blessings of what it looks like. And so today what I want to do is I want to talk about three things about unity of the body from 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 12 through 31. The first thing is that the unity of the body is formed by the cross. That the unity of the body is first formed by the cross. Secondly, the unity of the body is undermined by comparison. It's undermined, or you could say it's compromised by comparison. And finally, the unity of the body is sustained through community. The unity of the body is sustained through community. So it's formed by the cross, it's undermined by comparison, and it's sustained through community. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're just going to read this together, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? The whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So we want to see here about the power of unity, and the unity of the bodies first, that it's formed by the cross it's undermined by comparison and it's sustained through community. So first, let's look at this. That the, the unity of body is first formed by the cross. It's formed by the cross. In verses 12 through 13, it talks about how the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body are one body, referring to the physical body. And then and he, he, he connects this physical, the analogy of the physical body to Christ. And so he says, so it is with Christ. That Christ, like a physical body, also is composed of many members, but it's one body. And the means by which we were placed into this body was uh, in the spirit through baptism. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made of, uh, to drink of the one spirit. Now... How does the cross, if, the, if, if, if it's formed by the cross, how does 
the cross unite us? How does the cross unite us? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, I'm going to read this here. Ephesians chapter 2, 14 through 16, it says, For he, Christ, he, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. How did God form unity in the body through the cross? Well, the cross reminds us of two things that we share. One, the cross reminds us that we were all sinners. That we were all sinners. And in that sin, we have a tendency to divide and put up walls and barriers that don't unite us, but instead divide us. So we're all sinners that naturally divide. And secondly, the cross unites us by showing us that we were all redeemed by Christ. That we're all sinners, all of us, and they were all redeemed by Christ. That Christ is the only mediator between God and man. And it was the cross that unites sinners in Christ. It is the cross that unites sinners who naturally in our sin seek to divide and put up walls. And there's hostility and tension. Sound familiar? Just, just saying, if you've read the news anywhere, it sounds kind of familiar, but... It is the cross that takes broken people who divide and who put up walls with hostility and tension. And it is the cross that unites us in Christ. Because there's only one mediator between God and man. There's only one remedy. There's only one solution to the sinfulness and brokenness of humanity that divides. And that is the singular, all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That it was the cross that does away with that which divides. It's the cross that transcends all human barriers and divisions. What man seeks to divide, it's the cross that supernaturally unites. Because the cross is the only thing powerful enough to bring together all that separates. Sinful man divides, but the cross of Christ unites. Therefore, redeemed man no longer lives then to continue to divide. But then, but now lives in and lives out to pursue unity that they ha now have in Christ. And so it is apparent that as, as believers, as Christ followers, as the church, that we should love unity. We should love the unity that God has given us. We should love and seek the unity that has been formed by the cross. It is the only hope for a divided world. It's the only hope to what divides is by seeking unity back in the cross. And so we see here first that the unity of the body is first formed by the cross. And it is when we express our faith in Christ through baptism that we not only are made one and united with Christ, but we are united with one another in the body of Christ. The unity of the body is formed first by the cross. But secondly... Though God has formed us in unity and, and, and God has given us unity. See, unity is not something that we make. It's not something we build. It's not something we fashion. The unity that we have in the body is something that God did for us. God made it possible. God built it. But what God has built can be threatened and can be compromised. 
Though God has formed us and united us in the body by the cross, our flesh still can compromise and undermine the unity that God has formed for us. And so the biggest threat and the threat that Paul addresses here in this next section, the thing that compromises and undermines the unity of the body is what I will argue is comparison. Is comparison. If we look back here, Paul addresses these two objections, and I'm going to talk about these in a minute, but I want to just talk a little bit about why I believe that what undermines the unity of the body is comparison. See, the way that the body and the unity is supposed to work is that there's a common vision, there's a common purpose, there's a common goal, there's a common identity. And when we're united and when we seek out that purpose as the church to be that messenger, to be those agents of reconciliation, to proclaim the gospel, to, 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 to bring the love of Christ into our communities, when the church is missioned to go and make disciples of all nations, when we're focused on that, we don't think about so much the individual contributions. It doesn't mean that our individual contributions aren't important. It's just that's not our emphasis and it's not our focus, but rather we're focusing on what together we are accomplishing. It's that collective purpose and unity that we're pursuing that prevents us from focusing so much on ourselves. But see, here's the danger. When we lose sight of the unified purpose, we begin to focus on our singular contribution. When we lose sight of the collective unified purpose, we begin to start focusing on our individual contribution. And when that happens, when you take your eyes off of the unity of the body and you begin to put it onto your individual self, what naturally happens? We start looking around and we start comparing ourselves. And when comparison comes in, it compromises our unity. So here's an example that I was thinking about. If I was going to go to a famous restaurant that had a world-class pastry chef, right? They're famous for the pastries. So I go to this restaurant because I want to sample some of the creations of this world-class pastry chef. And let's say I go there and I ask them, I say, hey, what do you recommend? And they say, oh, the tiramisu is the best in the world. It is highly rated. You have to get a tiramisu from this world-renowned pastry chef. I says, okay, so I'll order a tiramisu. The tiramisu comes, it's beautifully plated, and I come and I take that first bite. After I take that first bite, I, I am not going to say this. Wow, to the chef, wow, I love what you did with the eggs. I love what you did with the eggs in this tiramisu cake. No one's going to say that. No one's going to say, I love what you did with the eggs. Now, are eggs in tiramisu? Yes. Are eggs an important ingredient in a tiramisu cake? Yes. But the eggs function to bring out the flavor of the whole dish. Nobody eats a tiramisu cake to taste the eggs. The purpose of the eggs is not to bring out their flavor, but to enhance the overall flavor. The body of Christ works together in the same way. Though each of our contributions are important, we are necessary ingredients. Without each of you, and Paul will argue this, without each of you using your gifts for the good of the body, the body suffers. It, it, 
compromises the, the, the overall flavor of the church. But the point is, we don't serve in our gifts to, to heighten our contributions. Nobody eats a cake to highlight the eggs. We eat the cake to highlight the flavor of the cake together, or all the ingredients together. And so the body of Christ works together for its beautiful and glorious purpose to bring glory to God through our collective growth into maturity when we do not highlight or bring attention to our own contributions, but we focus rather on the unity of what we are doing together as a body. When we begin to shift focus onto ourselves and how we stack up compared to others, we begin to slippery slope towards disunity and harm to the body. Comparison kills unity. When we care more about how we stack up in our contribution rather than what the collective whole is accomplishing, it kills unity. Let me say it again. Comparison kills unity. So we have to be vigilant in guarding and fighting against it. Now in this next section, Paul gives two examples of how comparison in the body compromises unity. He uses the body analogy in somewhat extreme and comical examples, but each reveal a deeper point. First, from 14 through 20, first, there's these two examples of how comparison undermines and compromises unity. The first is this. It's this attitude in the body that, that the body doesn't need me. That the body doesn't need me. And this is the feeling of inferiority or uselessness. So one of the first ways that comparison compromises our unity is that comparison begins for some of us to make us feel like my contributions, my gifts, my presence in the body is I'm inferior, it's useless, it doesn't matter. I don't bring any value here. Therefore, the body doesn't need me. Paul says in verse 14, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And then Paul argues, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But it is, it is, God arranged all the members of the body as he chose. So the argument here is, it's kind of a comical say. Say, say, say the, the foot should say, I'm not a hand. I remember I preached this at a, at a youth retreat, and I talked about, you know, when two people fall in love and they're dating and they go on a date and they're walking to the movies, you don't hold your feet. You hold your hands. And it's so romantic that couples are holding hands, walking, you know, walking down the street. But nobody's holding feet. In fact, nobody even looks at feet. You know, you put shoes on your feet. You put socks on your feet. And even if you wear sandals, like nobody is... You know, you know, praising you for your feet. But a lot of people like to gaze in each other's eyes. It's so romantic. Oh, I was so, I was so enraptured by his eyes. 
eyes or her eyes or the color of her eyes. And so there's this, there, you know, the hands, you know, the hands, we touch hands, we hold hands, we use our hands to show affection, we use our hands to serve one another, to show our care. And the eyes is, is how we perceive and the eyes are so romantic and everyone always likes to gaze into their eyes. When we want to show somebody you matter, what do we do? We give what contact? Feet contact? I hope not. That's weird. Stop it. Don't do that. You're never going to get a second date if you do that. Trust me. All right? Don't gaze at their feet. Okay? Gaze into their eyes. That's how you show somebody, hey, you're important to me. We give eye contact, right? And so it's very easy to think that, oh, these, these functions, these people in the church, these gifts. Well, I know Pastor Edward has the gift of communication. He goes up there on Sunday, he preaches these sermons, and it seems so powerful. And I'm sure people are really impacted. But, you know, I don't have a communication gift. In fact, I don't really have a gift that is even done in public. I mean, I serve behind the scenes. I visit people in the hospital. I, I fold bulletins in the office. Nobody sees that. I don't really think that makes a big impact. I'm definitely not like Pastor Edward or Pastor Andrew or Pastor David. Now, what they do makes impact. What I do just fills a need. It's just a task. But what they do is like a spiritual calling. And what Paul says is, hey, if no one stuffs those bulletins, if no one's visiting those people in the hospital, if no one's preparing the communion elements, if people aren't, you know, uh, practicing for work, I mean, if people aren't doing these things, the body suffers. And we would be one-dimensional, and no one, we would not be experiencing the fullness of how God arranged us. A lot of times when we compare, we think that other people have something better than us. And therefore, it makes us feel like we're inferior or useless. That could be your gift. You might think you don't have a gift that everybody always praises. And so, you know, I don't really need to serve because I don't really think what I do matters. No one's ever thanking me. I don't really think see anybody's recognizing me publicly. What good do I bring? And so some of us, we think it's a gift. But see, here's another thing. It's not just the gift. Some of us feel like the body doesn't need me because we think we're inferior. Some people think their gifts are inferior, right? I don't have an, infer I have an inferior gift. Others of us feel like we are inferior. Forget the gift. It's just, I'm inferior. I'm useless. Maybe for some of us, it's because you have a certain past. Or you have certain struggles. You've made certain mistakes. Maybe some of you feel like you don't have a high-paying job. Maybe some of you feel like I didn't graduate from a top four-year university. Maybe some of you are still living with your parents or you're still in an apartment and you're not in a house and you're not in that nice neighborhood. Maybe you've been driving the same car you drove in high school and everybody else is getting upgrades every year. And whatever it is, whatever it is, you, when you compare, you feel like you're not somebody that is much value. You feel like I don't have something to offer because of these things which somehow discredit me or disqualify me. So some of you may feel like you're useless or inferior because of a gift or just you yourself feel like, I don't really think I bring much to this body here. And this is what happens. Like in a physical body, if you stop functioning because you feel like you're useless, if I stop using my leg for about a week, you know what happens? It atrophies. It loses its strength. And I can't walk. When anybody in the body feels like I'm useless or inferior and you stop serving and you stop using your gift, we atrophy as a body and we can't function. 
And we're like that boat on the water trying to in a race and we're not going anywhere. So the first way that comparison compromises unity is a feeling of inferiority or uselessness. The body doesn't need me. But the second is the opposite. And this is, I don't need the body. And this is a feeling of superiority and self-sufficiency. This is the opposite feeling of where you look at your gift and you look at who you are and you just think, hey, I can just do what I'm doing. I don't really need anybody else. I don't really need you. What I'm doing, I feel pretty fulfilled as it is. And Paul here says that the eye can't say to the hand in verse 21 that I have no need of you, nor to the head to the feet, I have no need of you. See, a, a part that maybe gets more recognition and seems to be more valuable can't tell the other people I don't need you. Because Paul says every part of the body, even the ones that seem to be weaker, are indispensable. None of us in the church can stand alone outside of the body and survive spiritually. We can't survive spiritually, and the body won't survive spiritually. Nobody can pull themselves out of the body thinking that they themselves can stand on their own and survive spiritually. And when somebody pulls themselves out, the body can't survive spiritually either. The body must maintain unity. And those who think that they are more indispensable than others. Paul gives this um, example here about the human body. He talks about how there are certain parts that seem to be more weaker or more dishonorable, yet the way we treat it is we treat it with greater modesty, that there is an intentional care in which we cover up certain members of the body that seem to be more dishonorable. But it's the fact that we care for it shows that we need it, that we're not apart from it. Like, the fact that, see, um, not long ago we went on vacation to San Diego, and I never do this, but we, we, we packed up our car, we drove to the parking lot to park our car to go to the airport, and I, I realized I forgot my wallet. I forgot my wallet before I was about to get on an airplane to go on vacation, and I never do that. I forgot my wallet to go to an airplane, but I'll tell you something that I have never forgotten to do. I have never forgotten to leave the house with pants on. I, I mean, I haven't. I don't know, maybe you have, but if you have, maybe keep that to yourself. I'm saying, I never have. I mean, I've forgotten my wallet. I've forgotten my cell phone. I've forgotten a lot of things, my keys, locked myself out of the house, but I've never forgotten to put my pants on. I've never forgotten to clothe myself. It's something that we we take care to do. And because when we take care to do that, it reminds us that there's parts of our body that are parts of our body. We can't forget about them. They're there and there's care that needs to be given to them. In the same way, we can never say, I don't need somebody in the body. In fact, God puts them there to remind us that we have a role to play in caring for those who maybe seem weaker who feel discouraged, who maybe don't have what everyone else has. It is our job to show great care, to honor them. And so the two uh, compromising characteristics that, that undermine the body are, are through comparison is one, a feeling of inferiority or a feeling of superiority. And lastly, I want to talk about here is that the unity of the body is finally sustained through community. How is the unity of the body sustained? When we talk about how it's formed, we talk about what can threaten it, but how is it sustained? And lastly here, he says, 
when all of the body works together. In verse 25, there's no, that there would be no division, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. How the unity of the body is sustained is through community, but specifically through mutuality. If you've been with us, our small group vision revolves around three things. Mutual care, mutual discipleship, and mutual outreach. We believe that mutuality is one of the bedrocks of Christian community, along with commitment. Mutuality, to me, is the scorecard that grades our unity. Mutuality is the scorecard that grades our unity. How do you know that you're unified? Well, you look around and you see evidences of mutuality, okay? Mutuality. Everybody is caring for each other. Everybody is rejoicing together. There's a, there's a mutual care for one another. That means what you're going through is important to me. Your presence, your contributions are important to me. Your inputs, your opinions are important to me. Everybody feels like they have a place. And when there's a mutual care and a mutual affirming and a mutual practice of gifts, then that is the scorecard that grades whether we truly are unified or not. It's easy to give lip service to say that we're unified. And for many of us, it just means we just come into worship in one same building. But, the, but unity is far more than just sitting in the same seats that somebody else sits in. Unity is how much are you making space for mutuality in your life? Are you giving space for other people to speak into your life? Are you giving space for other people to be used by God to bless you and to challenge you and to help you grow? When we practice mutuality as the body in unity, not only is unity sustained, but the mission of the church is accomplished. See, here's, before I go into the application, see, here's where I think a lot of the problems happen in the church. The growth of the church and the health of the church, there is lack, but the lack is not out of composition. The lack is out of participation. See, when the church feels like it lacks something, it's not because God, there's a lack because of composition. God has gifted each local body with the gifts and the people it needs to grow and to function that God calls them to on the mission, the Great Commission. See, the issue of the body getting unhealthy and breaking down is not an issue of a lack of composition. It's a lack of participation. Some of us, for whatever reason, aren't participating as we should. And that is what harms the body. And for application, I, I want to I just close with this as an application. And I know this seems maybe a little bit biased because I'm working on the planning. But I, I, here's the application. Here's the application. I want all of you to seriously, prayerfully consider as an application to this to sign up and attend the Meta Retreat. Now, I'm going to tell you why. I want everybody as an application to this in expressing and committing to the unity that we have by signing up and attending the Meta Retreat. And why? Because the body needs you. And it is one of the only times as a congregation we ever come together like this for the amount of time that we do. It's the only time where people can practice their spiritual gifts in community with one another. If you're not with people, how can you serve them with your gifts? If you're not present, how can you build them up? That the way that we function as a body is when we come together and these rare opportunities so that we can minister, that we can grow together, and we can be a blessing to one another 
in the body. Now here's what happens to why I think a lot of people, and maybe some of you, aren't planning or don't go. And it's the same two things and two things that Paul gave in this passage. See, I think there's two main reasons why a lot of you won't go to the Meta Retreat or haven't gone. The first is, I don't want to go or I don't need to go to the retreat because it doesn't matter if I'm there. It really doesn't. They don't need me. I'm, I'm, I'm insignificant. The meta retreat's going to go on whether I'm there or not. Everyone's going to have a great time. They don't need me. If I'm not there, it won't make a difference. And Paul says, yes, it does. Your presence is the occasion where God can use your gift to bless somebody. And you don't know who that is. For you to not go means somebody suffers when you don't go. You are a valuable member of the body. You do matter. Some of us, the other hand, might say this, well, I don't really want or I don't really need to go to the retreat because I don't really need them. It doesn't, it's the same thing. I don't, it doesn't really matter if I'm not there because I don't really need them. Like, I don't, I don't really need to go. I'm involved. I serve. I'm in small group. I do this. I, I don't need to go to retreat. I'd rather have that weekend, save some money. I don't really need them. See, both undermine our unity. They really do. I'm not saying this because I'm on the planning team and I want everyone to go. I'm saying this because I believe from Scripture that you matter. Every single one of you matter. And when there's an opportunity for the body to come together, it matters who shows up. It really does. If you're not there, it matters. It matters. God has composed the body so that it functions the way that it should. And the way that the body functions is that we make each other's lives matter to us. So if you don't think you need to be there because they don't need me or I don't need them, you are hurting the body and you're hurting yourself. Really. It is hurtful to you spiritually and to the body. Your presence matters because you matter. And we need you to sustain the unity that God has formed in the cross. And we need to be on guard against a comparison that makes us feel irrelevant or it makes us feel like I don't need others in my life. This year, renew your commitment to the body by signing up and by attending and by enjoying together the unity. God's going to do something in your life and God's going to use you to make a difference in somebody else's life. We cannot overcome the brokenness and the sin in our lives without the body. And so that's what we're going to talk about this year on Mount Grace Wins. It matters. Each and every one of you matter. It's not just me. It's not just the worship team. It's not just the people who are leading small groups. But every single person, every single one of you have something to bring. And so I really challenge you to really prayerfully consider going because the body needs you. You matter, and your presence matters. I know that a lot of times it's hard. There's things in our lives that often compete, and we feel like we're too busy, or we feel like, well, I'm already doing enough. But I want you to challenge you to step away from the activity. Step away from what you're doing. And I want to think about how you're relating. Don't, don't measure your activity in the body based on your activity. 
used a scorecard of mutuality and used a scorecard of, am I really relating well to people? Because if you're doing too much to where you can't relate, then maybe you should just slow down or maybe you should take advantage of opportunity to relate and to connect and to build yourself back up in being a vital member of the body of Christ. Praise God for the unity that we have. And thank, thank God for the unity that he has given us to be the body. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for reminding us about the importance that each one of us play in the body and how unity is so important. And that there are threats and there are things that take our eyes away from unity, put them on ourselves. And when we do that, it compromises the unity that we have. And so God, I just pray that all of us would continue to examine our hearts on how we are pursuing unity in the body ourselves, how we are working to maintain it and to build it and, 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 to, and to live out of what you have already created in us is the unity that we have in Christ. And we just thank you for these words and pray that you would continue to bring life, not only to our hearts, but life in the life of this church as each one of us sees our role as indispensable and as an opportunity to be a blessing to each and every person in this church for your glory and for the mission of the church. And we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.